session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Talakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Now, usually this is where I give you the phone number to call in, but uh, today we have a very special guest via telephone, so there won't be any call-ins, but I'm very excited to have her. Uh, she's the author of the book of the week from last week, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, Neda Magboulet, and she has written a great book, that I can't re- recommend highly enough to, especially if you're Iranian, Iranian-American even more, but really anyone uh, wants to get a better understanding of the experience and the historical background and context of Iranians and the diaspora. It, it was it's a fantastic book. I enjoyed reading it, and I'm very happy that she agreed to join me today. Before I bring her on, let me introduce you to her. Born in New York City and raised in Portland, Oregon, Neda Marula is a sociologist and professor at the University of Toronto in Canada. Her research focuses on how migration affects identity, including a new project following the lives of Syrian war refugees in their first five years in Toronto. I can't wait to uh, read her research on that. Her first book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, is published with Stanford University Press. She lives in Toronto, Canada with her husband, Clayton, and their daughter, Nilu. Let me bring on the air. Netta, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. Hello from Toronto. Hello from Toronto. Thank you so much for making it work. I know you have a very busy schedule, um, and I'm glad we are able to coordinate this. And also, as I Thank you, and we spoke earlier. Thank you so much for writing this wonderful book. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for the invitation, and um, just what a tremendous opportunity to tell people about this book, and I think um, the listeners of your your show and your radio station are uh, exactly the people who will relate to this and hopefully you know, get something out of it. Yes, and I'm glad I'll have you on the show to, to get even uh, deep into what the book is all about. Uh, but before we get into that, I thought it could be good to talk about what motivated you uh, to write this wonderful book. <laughs> um, well, my path to becoming a book, book author has a lot to do with my career path. Uh, my day job is as a researcher and an academic, so I'm a professor of sociology. And uh, in order to become a professor, uh, you do a lot of schoolwork. And so I'm both, you know, sort of through the process of getting my bachelor's degree and my master's and ultimately a Ph.D. in sociology. Um, I was a person who was always very fascinated with group dynamics, with human behavior. And um, I think growing up as an Iranian-American person in Portland, Oregon, I had a lifetime's worth of observations about how I reacted to the world and how I perceived the world reacted to me and my family. But when I went to college, uh, I found very little material in the scholarship that really helped me understand these observations and to put them in a kind of context. So that became my life's work and my passion. So at every stage of my academic career, I was pursuing projects that had to do with Iranian-American identity and experience 
by the time I completed my PhD in the course of doing these projects, I got to know many, many different Iranian communities across the United States. It put me in a position to be able to understand a little bit more what was generalizable beyond just my solitary experience or my family's and to understand some of the nuances about what makes our experiences also very different, depending on, for example, where we grow up, uh, how we're perceived by other people, what we look like, our religion, our class. Um, so all of those things were sort of the backdrop uh, for, this, for this project. And uh, it came out as a book ultimately in 2017, but it's based on about 10 years of research. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you, when we spoke yesterday, you mentioned also part of it was, uh, as they say, writing the book that you wish was on the bookshelves, but wasn't. And so you wrote that book yourself. And um, it really is a great book that looks at what it's like to be an Iranian American, the experience. And you did a really, I thought it was very cool the way you interviewed, I think it was 84 um, Iranian American youth. of, I think the ages were all in the teens to early 20s by through, during the time of the research and their experiences are a big part of what you uh, have woven into the book throughout the book different aspects of being in school from elementary school middle school high school college even going to Iran and coming back uh, and beyond and so I thought that was a really um, you, the research you put into this in talking to them must have been a big part of the project and what motivated you to do it that way to share the stories uh, well, you know, I think that in my field of research, there is a lot of skepticism when a sociologist uh, centers themselves, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, uh-huh. That really our goal in the research enterprise is to look at broader patterns, is to, you know, collect as many narratives or as much data as possible and to be able to really make some sort of a claim that goes beyond the level of the individual. So something that's more of a case study, maybe like psychology does a better job at those sorts of things. And so for me to be able to understand group processes, it was really crucial um, to try to, you know, sort of scan the Iranian-American community as broadly as possible and to talk to youth. The reason why I focused on youth is, uh, I think, in terms of the human life cycle and identity formation, there's something really special about teenagehood, adolescence, and the first years of young adulthood, where particularly in the context of the United States, where it's very conventional for young people to move away from home, you know, whether it's to start a job or to go away to college. And so um, young people are forced to make decisions for themselves, really, in the first years of that process, where they have to define, you know, who am I without my family? Who am I uh, when I'm faced with these different decisions about the kind of life that I want to lead? And so that age group is really fascinating to me, and I think it offered an interesting window on the case of Iranian-Americans. Yeah, and that's, um, I think, from a psychological standpoint, that makes sense, too. Identity formation is happening in those uh, adolescent, teen, early 20 years. So it, it, it brings up a lot of things for Iranian-American youth, as it does for any uh, immigrant youth, where you have your own culture from your family heritage, but then you're faced with the host culture and then everything in between. And so that could bring up a lot of unique issues and experiences, which I think you uh, portray very well in this book. So we can even start just with the title, The Limits of Whiteness. Um, and maybe you could share what 
why that title and what that kind of means. Yes. Um, well, the core argument of the book is to say that Iranian Americans are a very interesting case for anybody who's interested in how inequality and racism operates in the mm-hmm. United States. This is because, as many of your listeners may relate or know, um, Iranian Americans are a group that has, since it's the time that it, you know, this community really arrived in the United States in a sort of critical mass from the 1950s forward, Iranian Americans have always technically been classified as white in the United States. Uh, I go on to show in my book through a lot of historical and archival research that this wasn't always the case, but we can say that once Iranians started to show up in big numbers through the 50s and then, of course, following 1979, they've been integrated formally or technically into the United States as a quote-unquote white group or a white ethnic group. But on the other hand, we know from the legal record and from police records that Iranian Americans have not always been treated as white, whether it's in social settings like employment, housing, in schools, in neighborhoods. So there's this built-in paradox where what it says on paper about a group doesn't necessarily match up with how that group is treated or how they even experience themselves through other people's eyes. Mm -hmm. But you add on to that another layer, which I think your listeners know something about, which is that Iranians also come as immigrants to the United States with their own really deeply held narratives and understandings of themselves as Ariyai, Aryan, you know, however you want to define that, Caucasian, white, there's all kinds of language and and narratives that young people who are Iranian but grow up in the United States hear from their family or their community about their ancestry and about their heritage from Iran. And so it's this perfect kind of a context or storm where there's all of these paradoxical signals that a young person gets about who they are or what they really are. And so in that way, Iranians are a really perfect site to understand the social construction of race and to really understand that these things are are negotiated every day. They're not, um, they're not fixed categories, right? Um, and it becomes something that I think can be very specific to Iranians or other people from that part of the world, but it has a lot of implications for for any group whether it's you know asian people latinos um, all kinds of groups that are sort of somewhere in between the binary in the u.s right yeah i think you know i my own personal experience i remember marking or they would ask us to mark white when we would have demographic questionnaires or things in in school and feeling like wait but i'm not white or i'm not really that and it's like so there is that in between so there's that technically or legally considered white but then day-to-day experience that people have that makes them feel like they're definitely not white and so that puts us in an interesting predicament or an interesting experience that we have trying to navigate uh, this limit of whiteness uh, which which I think is is quite fascinating you bring up throughout the book that term or that concept of being at the limits of whiteness um, and the legal part you, you do a great job outlining the history and the legal aspects of this, that even before Iranians were coming to the United States in large numbers, there was a debate or there there was talk of whether or not there were white within the courts. It was already becoming a sense of um, determining the whiteness of Iranians before we were even here in the United States. Yes. 
so, you know, roughly 100 years ago, um, in order for an immigrant to become a naturalized U.S. citizen, they had to present a variety of different kinds of proof that they were a suitable candidate to become a U.S. citizen and that they were eligible for naturalization. And one of those key pieces that they needed to prove was that they technically were right. They were white. And so um, earlier waves of immigrants from the area of the world we could call the Middle East or West Asia, who were traveling to the United States at the time and hoping to become citizens. These were groups from what we would think of now as Armenia or the Arab world, so in particular from Syria, the Levant. Um, And so you have historical records of immigrants from about 100 years ago coming from places like Armenia or Lebanon and Syria, and they would go to court. And part of the package of evidence that they would show to immigration judges in the U.S. was to say, um, we're white because of X reason and Y reason. Oftentimes they would make reference to the history of Christianity in those nations. Um, They would perhaps, you know, try to uh, suggest that their skin tone was appropriate or that their hair color or their hair texture was but when you read the court transcripts and you look closely, you see that they also make many references to Iranians, who they refer to in different terminology, uh, whether they're using the term Persian or they talk about Iranians as quote-unquote Mohammedans, um, sort of talking about the, the Muslim history of Iran. Um, Iranians show up 100 years ago in the American U.S. citizenship records all the time, even though they themselves were not often the claimants trying to become naturalized citizens, but they are dredged up in other people's court cases to say, like, no, those are actually the brown people from our part of the world. It's the Iranians that you don't want to naturalize, but us, the Syrians, the Armenians... We are eligible. We are the kinds of immigrants that you want from that part of the world. Yeah, and that was interesting uh, when you, you kind of have a, there's a, a figure where it shows that sometimes people used an argument that we are like the Iranians and they're white, so that means we should be able to be naturalized. Or sometimes they would say we are not like the Iranians and they are brown or not white, and so we should actually be able to be naturalized. So it was interesting. There was this sort of back and forth, but eventually, as you said, especially when Iranians started to come to the United States, this legal standing of being white was pretty solid as far as from a legal standpoint. But again, the experiences of individuals... uh, is, is far different from that. Now, we're at a commercial break, but there's so much more to unpack uh, in the book, uh, including things like the Aryan myth that sometimes we hear Iranians talk about being the original Aryans or that this somehow gives us a claim to whiteness, but also we'll talk about different experiences of Iranian-Americans that you outline throughout the book. Again, I'm joined today by the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian-Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, Neda Mapbuleh. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined by the author and sociologist Neda Marboulet, the author of the book, The Limits of Whiteness. Let me bring her back on. Um, so, Neda, we were talking about some things, and before the break, I mentioned this the Aryan myth, or what you hear a lot from Iranians, especially previous generations, that talk about. Iranians being the original Aryans or the original white people or that the name Iran, it's from Aryans, so we are Aryans. Can you talk a bit about that? Because that, that's something I think comes up quite a bit in the book. 
Yeah, uh, that's a really common story among young people that I talk to, where uh, the first sort of gentle introduction that they have to how race is or is not talked about in our community is um, oftentimes when young people would be in elementary school and they would experience some form of bullying or ugly comments about their appearance or anything that was perceived as different from a norm, um, they would oftentimes come home after school and, you know, gently begin the conversation with family members about what had happened to them. And um, uh, as, as I talk about in one of the chapters of my book, there's this young woman, Donia, who, uh, when she was in school, her classmates said, you know, you're hairy, you have a unibrow, you're a gorilla. And so when she came home and told her mom about what kids had said, uh, this is what Donia says. She says, you know, my mom said such a typical Iranian parent thing. She says, Donya Junam, tell them we're the original white people. We're Aryans. You know, Iran comes from the word Aryan. But Donya then told me, you know, I knew the kids bullying me would laugh if right. I said to them, you know, but I'm white, you guys. <laughs> so I kept quiet after that. And so I think why I chose to use Donya's story as a way to begin this discussion of the Aryan myth in my book is that um, for children going up in the U.S., when they hear a word like Aryan, that has a really direct tie to neo-Nazi mm -hmm. and white supremacist hate movements in the American context. And so it can be very, very jarring, almost violent to hear yeah. their loved family members be describing our own community using terminology that seems to come from the same place or have the same root. Right. And so for me, you know, to be able to really understand and put myself in the shoes of parents or grandparents or other people um, who, who do, right, uh, sort of discuss this story with children and promote this kind of idea in our community, I had to really understand where this came from. Right. Because, of course, my experience as a young person growing up was really similar to Donya, that I didn't have the background as someone who wasn't growing up in Iran. I wasn't socialized, you know, in that environment. I wasn't learning Iranian history in school there. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so I had to do a lot of digging for myself to understand the backdrop uh, of all of this. And so um, uh, it also connects, I would say, to something that you had raised uh, before the commercial break, which is about um, how different immigrant groups have positioned themselves vis-a-vis -vis Iranians throughout American history. And so we talked about how Arabs or Armenians had gone to court and said, right, for these different reasons, we're the white ones, Iranians are the brown ones. Um, but it was also, right, uh, immigrants from South Asia, from India, who went to court 100 years ago, and they said, actually, we're white, because like Iranians, we have this shared Aryan past, Sanskrit and Persian are part of the Indo-European language tree. And so, right, there's like mm. other groups that have really similar kinds of narratives and claims to whiteness um, so that the Iranian case is somewhat unique in its nuances. But other groups, right, have similar sorts of claims and logics uh, that are prominent in their in their communities. So anyway, yeah. um, suffice to say, I was very intrigued to learn more about um, what kind of work historians uh, have done about 
uh, where where the story comes from, how people have justified um, these sorts of claims before. And so I, in my book, draw really heavily on some recent scholarship that's been done by people like the historian Reza Zia Ebrahimi, um, the belief that, you know, Iran comes from the word Aryan is something that he uh, does a really fine and deliberate job of identifying as something that sort of emerges actually during the Qajar era. Um, it's not something that sort of takes us back to the era of Cyrus or anything, you know, that far back. But it's more of a modern manifestation of Iranian nationalism. Uh, they took the word Arya, meaning noble, from sacred Zoroastrian texts. And they, in many ways, did a very intentional job of connecting a word that did not have a racial valence or an ethnic valence. And they tied it to some of the early racial science that was coming out of Europe at the time of the Qajars. And so, um, you know, Reza Zia Ebrahimi's work does a very good job of showing that the way we use Aryai today to talk about a kind of Caucasian or white sense of uh, ethnicity or specificity about Iranians is something that's actually much more about Iran as a modern nation state than a kind of primordial claim, right, to some sort of original racial background. Um, And it makes a ton of sense that by the time you have your first mass educational textbooks in the Pahlavi state, by 1928, this tie between Arya, meaning noble, and Ariane being used at the time by Germans and like Nazi Germany, um, this becomes something that becomes uh, sort of standardized across the way Iranian history was taught to who would later be, right, the great-grandparents, the grandparents, the parents of this generation of Iranian-Americans mm-hmm. who were born in the United States. And so... Um, I think I can provide somewhat of like an explanation for how it is that someone like Donya, right, would come home after being bullied in an American school. And her mother really, I, I genuinely believe, like thinks she's giving Donya a tool to fight back against bullying, right, mm-hmm. to feel grounded and to feel secure in her identity by saying we have this claim as Ariyayi, uh, to to being just as white as that blue-eyed, blonde-haired American, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, right. um, but the effect that that actually has for Donya and for young people like her is is really complicated. Yeah, and I, it's interesting because first there's that piece when you realize the history of it, you see that you're not connecting to something way back when this emerged, or at least the concept was emerging around that time, and so you're tying yourself to, like you are saying, this racial uh, science that was coming out of Europe about, you know, white superiority or the purity and these things that are not things we want to associate with, but uh, unknowingly people are in a way connecting themselves to that. And related to that, embedded in all this, even just the title of the book, The Limits of Whiteness, um, there is this piece of, well, there is a, well, white is good, white is better, at least that's how the United States was making it seem. So everyone is trying to be white because it has been somehow proclaimed as the better way to be. And even that's related to the, these issues of 
uh, the I think the racial science, quote unquote, racial science. I say that because obviously it's it's been debunked as having any value. Um, but even that whole thing of you know people trying to come to the United States proving their whiteness that there was something there. So even that argument, I think, for a lot of the younger generation doesn't ring very true or something they want to connect with of being proud to be white uh, doesn't feel very good. But as you were saying, from these previous generations, that was some kind of a claim to being powerful or a claim to not being less than like other people in a certain region. And so they want to attach themselves to that. So here you see this big disconnect and cultural uh, or generational gap uh, between the, the, you know, this generation of the younger Iranian Americans and their parents and their grandparents. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that it connects more broadly to what we know in terms of scientific research that race is socially constructed. Mm -hmm. And this is probably like a phrase that your listeners have heard. It's something we sort of take for granted. But what that means is that um, we know that race is not real in the sense that there's no biological or genetic basis for the way that we classify people into races. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we can find that there's more genetic variation within a group that we think of as a racial group than there is genetic variation across groups. And so although there is not a genetic or a biological basis for race as a phenomena or the way that we currently lump and sort people into races, nonetheless, right, we know that human beings use visual clues like mm -hmm. a skin tone or hair texture, eye color or an eye shape, these like attributes that are visible to the naked eye. And we lump and sort people based on that. We even sometimes use other social or cultural cues, something like a person's name or their accent. Um, and we use those to not just group people into categories, but we also take those categories and then we imbue them with a kind of meaning, right. either like a moral value, right, mm -hmm. or a kind of assumption about what that person is capable of or what the characteristics that unite the people within that group, you know, what they share. And so race is not real, yet it's so, so real in the kinds of consequences that it has for people. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like, all of this is just really, really important material to think about when we are a community as Iranians where we are clearly, right, perceived as somewhat ambiguous. Uh, we, we could go one way, according to some people, we could kind of go another way. And so we, we do live in this, this uh, sort of in-between space where our, for the most part, like somewhat ambiguous features, our ambiguous sometimes names or these different cues, right? Um, they're constantly being interpreted by people and people who don't have any background or, or familiarity with Iranians um, oftentimes, right, misidentify or, right. or mislabel people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there's a whole section of my book that's sort of about, like, the very, very violent things that have happened to people who are actually not Iranian, but an outsider has perceived them as being Iranian, whether it's the two gentlemen on work visas from India who were recently shot at and in one case murdered in Kansas, all the way to, you know, like a 
economics professor from Columbia in South America who in Washington, D.C. was recently, you know, pushed and shoved and yelled at because somebody riding the subway perceived this, this guy, this Latino, as Iranian. Mm-hmm. And so it's both sort of like how, how do people perceive us, but also how do other people get mushed into the category that we're in? Right. And all of these things, um, I think, are just they have really, really important um, consequences for us. And I think part of the backstory of why I felt very committed to to offer this contribution and to write this book was I wanted us to begin to talk about this in a more open and honest way Mm -hmm. beyond just these sort of platitudes like, oh, you're being bullied. Well, you should feel better because we're already Right. Yeah. And it's interesting, even when they, they say that it's that's what we maybe they feel within themselves, but they're missing the context, which I think in a way is this limits of whiteness is that, OK, even if you think we are this or you want me to believe this, if I'm going to get discriminated against or bullied in the outside world, what difference does it make if I think I'm whiter than them, which itself obviously I have issue even saying it. But what is that going to do for me when I'm actually facing real discrimination, real consequences. Like you said, race is not real, but it has real consequences. So, you know, it's, it's missing the point, too, that it's like, okay, this is an actual experience. Okay, that you can tell them I'm whiter than them because of this thing or whatever it is or the original Aryan race, but if they're still making fun of me, what difference is it going to make? You know, they're not going to see me as white, even if you think we are whiter than them, you know? Yes, yeah, and I think that, um, you know, this is something that, again, listeners they come to listening to your show with already their own experiences and their observations. So I'm not going to say anything new here, but like this is also part of the barrier when you think about organizing on a more collective basis Mm. with other groups that have the same sorts of grievances that we do. You can think about something like the travel ban, the Muslim ban right now, or, you know, these different forms of violence and degradation and discrimination that touch Iranians. They're also touching so many other groups But the more that we cling to sometimes these narratives or these stories about a kind of exceptionalism that Iranians have and the terminology that Reza Zia Ebrahimi, the historian, uses, he says it's a dislocated idea as if Iran is like a piece of Europe that, bloop, like it just got (laughs) dropped into this other part of the world accidentally. But it's this sort of a quirk of geography that it's a bunch of white people in between, you know, Pakistan and <laughs> Iraq on one side, Pakistan on the other side, Afghanistan, um, and that that's really, like, you know, Zia Ebrahimi is very forthright. He says, like, this is delusional, this is um, something that, that, you know, is historically inaccurate. Um, as a sociologist, for me, I think it's really important to interrogate it because it becomes a political barrier mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of understanding really who who our allies potentially could be, who we have kind of common ground to share with and who we could actually team up with to to improve um, the different forms of, of violence and the problems that are facing our community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that uh, point will bring up later when we're talking more about the Iranian-American youth and how they've connected to other minorities who they recognize like them are being discriminated against and seeing that they can be allies and and should be looking out for them as well as themselves. And we're at another commercial break. I think after the break, we could get into continuing this theme of the Aryan myth and somehow being uh, this 
original white race, uh, so to speak, but looking for some kind of almost superiority. We see that a lot with the previous generations and connecting to the past, things like poets and Cyrus the Great and other ways of saying we're somehow better than. So that theme comes up, and I want to share later my own thoughts on the psychology of that, but maybe we can talk a bit about more about the Persian culture, the ways that we connect to it, the way we use it at times to try to bring ourselves up, but unfortunately at the expense of lowering others. Um, and we can get into that a bit after the break. Again, I'm joined by the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Neda Mahbule. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm joined again by Neda Mahbule, the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of race. Now, before the break, uh, we were talking about the Aryan myth and how at times this has been used and is continued to be used as a way of saying we as Iranians are the original whites or the original Aryans and so somehow makes us uh, better than or superior. But also we touched on, or I was mentioning the cultural piece too, how Iranians can talk about the poetry and Cyrus the Great and the great civilizations, which all of that is true, but at times using that as a way of saying we are better than others um and and there's a generational conflict or uh issues that come up related to this maybe if you could yeah. touch a bit sorry i didn't really it wasn't that wasn't really a question it was like a sentence that was just like hey now let's see what you have to say but i wanted to know what you thought about that piece because that comes up a lot in the book where uh some of these youth are connecting to the culture and it's wonderful and they like it but then it does bring up some of these issues of do they see it different than how their parents might see it Yes, absolutely. And I think this is something that through the course of the process of doing the research for this book and then ultimately writing it, you know, uh, to be honest with the listeners, like, this was also in a way like it followed my path through adulthood. That like when I first started the <laughs> very basic version of this project when I was like 18 years old, um, you know, I had just left my parents' house. I was a teenager. I was very much in the mode of like, being a child and looking at things sort of with that perspective. But through this process, like, I have also become a mother. I have to make, you know, all different kinds of decisions now about um, what values I want my daughter to have instilled within her, mm -hmm. what kind of connection I want her to have to her heritage and to, um, to Iran. And so, um, you know, I just I have a different relationship with this that has evolved because of the way that my life has also evolved. And so I have a lot of compassion, I think, for this experience that young people describe in my book where they say, you know, my parents go overboard sometimes with trying to attribute all of the greatness of the world to Iran so that I feel confident right, in my background and my identity. One young person in the book said, you know, my dad will take any excuse to tell me about some sort of invention or art or poetry and to say that that came from Iran, right? And she says, you know, she said, like, potato chips came from Iran, and that's so ridiculous. And that was one of the most fun things for me was, like, researching where potato chips came from, which, by the way, as people would probably guess, it comes from basically the area of the world now the uk or britain like mm -hmm. fish and chips all of that <laughs> they had potatoes there right like they were the first ones that started to cut and fry potatoes but anyway you know sort of these young people telling me like my parents are so concerned or worried that i won't grow up proud that they then sort of paint this picture of like iran is everything good and nobody else has culture mm. nobody else has values right mm -hmm. nobody else has honar 
or art or something of value. And so um, that's something that in many ways connects to the sort of paradox about race and ethnicity that I talk about in my book. But as you said, it also goes more broadly into just issues of culture and values and identity and how I think it's very real that we do have certain kinds of chauvinistic or ethno-chauvinistic tendencies Mm -hmm. uh, in our communities and in our families. And I think that I can explain that because as parents, like, we understand that there's so many different kinds of influences and pressures that kids are under, and we're working really, really hard, right, to make Mm -hmm. sure our kids have high self-esteem, that they are proud of who they are and where they come from. And so I, I experience this on a very personal level now, right? Like, what is that line between making sure somebody is proud of their background and they have access to that knowledge and, and those, those important stories, but at the same time, like, what's that thin line, right, mm-hmm. between having enough support and pride or going overboard and, you know, elevating ourselves at the risk of denigrating or diminishing others. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, there's so many layers to that. It's so complex because, you know, there's the piece of wanting to pass on your heritage and your culture to your kids, which can be very noble and good and and very beautiful. There's also the feeling of wanting your kids to feel good about themselves and be proud of themselves. And I think, unfortunately, we sometimes parents will have this mindset that I have to make my child feel better than other people to make them feel good, or this idea that confidence or self-esteem means you look, not look down, but almost look down at others. And so you'll see parents do this in various ways of saying you're better than other kids, or you're the most this, or you're the most that. And also this is another way that we do that because you come from this heritage or this background, or you have this cultural background, it's going to make you uh, better than others. And so you should feel good about yourself. Um, oftentimes I think defending against some of the insecurities we can have or the fears of inferiority we all can have and carry with us. And so we sometimes, we somehow want to attach to something. Because it's interesting to say, well, because Cyrus the Great was Persian, that's how, somehow that makes me good or great, you know, Um, even though really there shouldn't be a connection or to me there isn't. There's also a lot of Iranians that did bad things. And I wouldn't say because of them we're somehow bad or not good. We all should be judged on how we live our life and who we are. But there's so many layers to this of how parents are trying to they think maybe guide their kids in a certain direction. And at times they might go overboard, as you said, and thinking that they know that this is the right way and, and pushing it on them. And I also wonder if there's a difference between parents, for example, Iranian Americans in the United States and Iranians in Iran. And where when you're in a different country, there is m- maybe more of a fear that your kids are going to lose the culture. Even you're losing the culture a little bit by being out of the country. So you might even feel that even more that there's this a need and almost this fear of not preserving this culture and passing it down. So when you see your children going away from it, there might even be more of an anxiety of, oh no, they're gonna we're gonna lose this forever. This is gonna be gone if I don't preserve that within them. And so I think you'll sometimes see this where the, the parents are pushing probably too hard, which unfortunately at times even push the kids away from something. If you you know anything you push too hard, a lot of times will unfortunately uh, have an opposite reaction. So it, it's very interesting, and that comes up a lot in the book, these these youth sharing their experiences with their parents, um, becoming aware of certain things, coming to their own realizations. And I think that is also a very fascinating part of the book. You you talk with kids at the 
they talk about their elementary experiences, high school, college, and beyond. Um, actually, related to the, the college and beyond, there's a, a camp that you uh, actually go to a few times, and I'm not sure if I understood it right, if you also served as a, a volunteer counsel, uh, counselor one time. Um, but maybe you could talk about that camp, because I hadn't heard about it till you mentioned in the book. Sure. Uh, so some of your listeners might be familiar with this, but there's a organization uh, that's run by second-generation Iranian-Americans, and the acronym is EOB, I-A-A-B. It stands for Iranian-American Alliances Across Borders, and it was founded almost 20 years ago um, by a couple Iranian-American women, uh, and among them we can say Nagas Bajokli, if anyone knows her work. She's an anthropologist now. Um, so she's gone into the academic path like me and Amy Malek, um, who is also an anthropologist and a professor like me, um, and their friend Niku Paydar. The story is like they were, you know, in their 20s, still undergraduates. They all happen to be on a study abroad program in London, but they're like, you know, Iranians born in the United States, second generation young women, and they were living in London and they basically one night, like, broke down what are the problems in our community, what do we want young people to sort of come away with about exactly what you're talking about, you know, these issues around how to have a strong identity and a strong sense of self, but to not do that at the, you know, diminishment of of others, and how to really understand where Iranians fit in the multicultural landscape of the U.S. So these young women, they're, like, in their 20s, they come back from study abroad, and they forge a 501c, you know, nonprofit organization. And one of the signature programs that they started is a summer camp for youth called Camp Oyande. And it's held over two weeks every summer in different parts of the United States. And that's in order to make it accessible to different people in our community. Um, and they, they basically, like, have this amazing environment. I talk about it in the book as like a kind of utopia where for two weeks, uh, young people from all over the country and sometimes from other countries, like from the broader Iranian diaspora across Europe and Canada and Australia, they, they come together and they talk about these sorts of difficult issues about, you know, growing up and family pressures. They have beautiful workshops that are about Iranian poetry, both poetry that was written in Iran by Iranians there, but also modern poetry that's Iranian-American-oriented, um, that's done by, you know, poets like Solma Sharif and other people who write in the United States. So anyway, there's this, like, kind of arts component, there's a kind of collective organizing component, but also I think there's just that great feeling of a bunch of young people who look around a room and they see, you know, 100, 200 people who they feel a sense of community and kinship with. And when Iranians live all over the United States, and sometimes they can feel really isolated from one another, right? Not everybody lives in Tehranjalis <laughs> or in Tehranto. And so um, this camp also just does a tremendous job of building social networks. Um, and so this is a crucial place for me to get access to, to, to be able to understand, right, like what kind of identities and communities are second-generation youth forging. So these amazing women who started this organization, who are now some of my best friends, at the time, of course, like they were very skeptical about me. And they at first said, you know, before you come study our camp, you need to come be a volunteer counselor mm -hmm. for one year, just like 
you're not allowed to take notes, you're not allowed to take any recordings, just participate, be part of our camp, really understand who we are and why we do the things that we do, and then we'll talk about, right, whether or not you can come back in later years and and do some of your research there. And so that's the backstory of, of how I ended up writing one chapter about Camp Wayanda. Yeah, that was very cool, uh, their experiences. I've been to some camps like that um, as a counselor in other roles, not quite that camp, but it had a similar feel and it was interesting seeing their experiences. And uh, I think for a lot of youth, their college age, I mean, I remember for myself, is a time where they go back and embrace their culture a little bit more. Oftentimes when you have the children of immigrants and their cultural identity, when they're kids, they're so connected to their parents, very, very often they embrace that uh, culture of their family more. But then as they get older, they start to resist that more, even reject it at times and embrace the host culture because they need that. And they're also now more focused on their peers in early adolescence and making sure they get their approval and fitting in and all that becomes so important. But oftentimes uh, college years can be a time to come back um, to that or become more aware of this other side of yourself that you maybe have pushed away for some time. And so you talk about experiences of college and uh, student groups that exist on college campuses, but also this camp where it can be a time for people to embrace some of that their Persian culture. What I thought was very interesting about the camp was it wasn't just about this pure Iranian, everything Iranian kind of a vibe, but there was, um, you know, connections with Arabs. And there was an, uh, you talked about, I think, an Arab speaker or an Arab artist that came and performed and also uh, paying attention to other minorities who are struggling or facing discrimination and how we must be allies for them if we're recognizing our own struggles or what we go through we can't ignore others who are going through similar paths and we actually can join forces and be allies for one another so the camp had a very interesting uh, vibe and that ch- i thought it was cool that you devoted a whole chapter to that to get into what the camp is like and the experiences of the campers there yeah i think the idea originally for the camp was really to instigate um the potential for that turn back toward you know, Iranian stuff that you describe as like, you know, that's sometimes a journey somebody goes back into once they're in college and they sort of find their culture for themselves, right? And they seek it out at a later time, even though maybe in their teenagehood they like were trying to sort of be peer oriented and to and to go away from that. I think the intention of the camp was to really provide a space for maybe that turn back towards mm-hmm. Iran to happen mm-hmm. a bit earlier. That if yeah. you have like college age counselors, people who are in their early 20s who relate to these struggles, they're trying to forge these sort of hybrid identities for themselves um, to, to introduce kids that are in junior high and high school to those kinds of peer mentors could potentially, right? Yeah. Um, maybe alleviate some heartache down the road <laughs> or, or just promote that kind of curiosity and that open-mindedness to one's Iranian background at an earlier age. But as you said, it's not any old kind of relationship with Iran or Iranian identity. But to be honest, and I write about this in the book, it's a very politically progressive organization. It's one that is very intentional in building connections to other communities of color across the United States. So one of the years I was there as a researcher where I write about it in the book, they had, as you said, um, like a Syrian-American rapper, Omar Effendum, who came and did a concert with the youth. Um, there was a 
Egyptian author, Mustafa Bayoumi, who came, and the the campers had read a chapter of a book that he'd written, and they had a Q&A with him. Um, they've had, you know, representatives from many other different communities uh, come in to speak. And so uh, they have, like, a really amazing curriculum that's about gender and sexual identity and expression. Uh, so it is, like, a very politically progressive and I say utopian kind of idea uh-huh. of who Iranians can be and how inclusive that that banner of Iranian American can be so many of the campers also I have to mention like they come from families and backgrounds where they might have one Iranian parent but they have another parent who's perhaps European American white um, in many cases Latinx Asian, West Indian, Black, you know, any number of backgrounds. So it's this amazing space that I think um, is super intentional in mm-hmm. how open and inclusive and and how it really challenges these sorts of static or maybe um, sort of rigid ideas of who's a good Iranian, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. if, if you if you don't speak Farsi, then you're not Iranian. Or if you don't have two Iranian parents, then you're not Iranian. They really break that down from the first night of camp. And they say there's no such thing as like one way to be Iranian or a good Iranian or a bad Iranian. And so um, they're really, really intentional about breaking that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was a really interesting chapter for me, uh, Camp Ayanded. So that was to the future, Ayanded. Maybe after the break, we can talk about To the Homeland, which is a whole chapter about Iranian-American youth traveling to Iran and the, the before and signs the hype and excitement before, but also the preparation mentally and bureaucratically and everything else, and then actually getting there and then their experiences in Iran and then coming back. Uh, so after the break, I'm joined again by the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Neda Magbule. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, joining me today is the author of the limits of whiteness, sociologist Netta Marboulet. So, uh, Netta, as I mentioned before the break, you have a whole chapter devoted to the experiences of Iranian Americans traveling to Iran. And the travels begin far before they step onto a plane as far as the effects it has on them. So maybe you could talk a bit about uh, that. I know, obviously, when you write a chapter on this, you have so many interviews with them or parts of the interviews that you don't include. So maybe you could share your experiences when you talk to the Iranian-American youth about their experiences of traveling to Iran. Sure. I mean, I think the most typical reaction young people had was to say, like, you know, for me to be able to visit my family that lives in Iran, it's not analogous to what my classmates go through, Mm -hmm. which is like, they can fly to Italy to see their Italian grandmother or, like, you know, drive across some sort of state line to get there. But when your family is separated not just by geography but also by sanctions and a lack of diplomatic relations mm-hmm. between your country of origin and the country of your birth, then going, quote-unquote, back home is actually something that requires, like, just a lot of work like sheer work whether it's psychological work to kind of psych yourself up for what you don't know you know Mm -hmm. or just the kind of material consequences of having the right passports 
and getting the paperwork in order and, you know, any number of ways that it's actually quite difficult uh, for, for people, right, to move between the two countries. And so the young people in my study, they're not what I call like, professional travelers. So they don't belong to the class of Iranian Americans who we think of as like the journalists or the researchers or the people who are very nimble and they can cross those borders easily. They maybe have, you know, really um, professional level Persian skills and these sorts of things. I'm talking about your kind of casual family tourist traveler, someone mm-hmm. who probably is going, quote unquote, back home for the first time. And I try to get into the the minds or the shoes of these young people to understand, you know, what does this trip mean to them? And how what's all the buildup and the kind of the hopes and the aspirations that they have for themselves about what this trip will be, and then what is the reality of that trip to Iran? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there's that so much, like you said, psychologically, uh, bureaucratically, and you know that goes into it that might not go into other trips or vacations or going back home for other people. Um, and so, yeah, there's the the paperwork and things. Sometimes you have to go to the embassy, the uh, DC, Pakistan's embassy, right? Um, in Washington, yeah. D.C. to get the visa. But even just psychologically getting ready, it was interesting traveling and how there's a gendered experience or it could be different based on being a man or a woman. Um, and you heard men and women share different experiences. Sometimes for the men, it was more about the process of getting there and traveling being something that made them more nervous about not looking too Iranian on the way there, but then looking Iranian enough kind of when you're when you're there, but then for the females, there can be more concerns about when they are there and what that experience will be like as a woman, uh, meeting the standards and the norms and the rules and not getting themselves in trouble with the various uh, types of institutions there that they could get in trouble with. So we can, well, I was going to say the start with the men, but that's how we, we typically have done it throughout <laughs> history. So starting with the women, the female experience, um, maybe you could talk a bit about that. Even for me, it was interesting that that uh, the moment where they would come uh, over the speaker in the airplanes and say, we are now crossing into Iranian territory. So the, the women would have to change into suitable or, you know, meeting the standards of the Islamic Republic of Iran uh, gear. And there's like a sense of anxiety in the plane or, you know, the way that was an interesting thing. I've never experienced going to Iran, so I didn't know about that. I've heard of it, but reading that was interesting. So maybe start with the the female experience or some aspects of that um, that came up in your interviews. For sure. Um, this is a piece of the research of the book where gender became extremely important in structuring people's experiences and mm-hmm. also you know, paranoias and political theater following 9-11 and the war on terror became really important in this chapter because in order to, quote-unquote, go home, young people have to travel through TSA and the different kinds of security apparatuses and airports and these sorts of liminal spaces, right, that are, like, between nations. Um, And so gender and the way that we typically think about it in these in-between spaces actually inverts or it gets upside down. And so what I'm thinking here is that we usually in sociology or in our common sense think, you know, it's women's bodies that are very scrutinized all the time in everyday life. And that's why, you know, women 
are socialized into, let's say, like body hair removal or making sure that their makeup is perfect, that their hair is perfect or their clothes are perfect, right? And so we have a very strong sense that patriarchy and other forms of social control have made it so that women are always manipulating their bodies or they're highly conscious of their bodies, right? And they're constantly changing or modifying their body. Um, It's really in these in-between spaces in travel that the racialized and the gendered Iranian-American boy's body or the male's body is actually the body under more scrutiny. If you think about the kinds of logics that structure TSA and the airport, the supposed threat of the Middle Easterner, of the Muslim, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that um, security sort of, uh, (laughs) quote-unquote, has the, like, you know, random security screening, and it's totally random, but of course, right, there's these sort of cues that the the system is looking for. It's really men that are triggering that Mm -hmm. more often. And so it was this tremendous moment in the research process for me where as I followed young men and, you know, the process of them growing up and going to American schools or going to Camp Oyanda or wherever it was that they were going, Issues of the body and the corporeal and their physicality, they were sort of secondary. They were not Mm. so salient oftentimes. But when it was about travel to Iran, like then it was very, very much front of mind for young men. And they would say, you know, yeah, going to the airport always sucks and I'm pulled aside in the line. But I know that if, you know, my ultimate destination is Iran or if I have sorati in my bag going there and then coming back, I have something that suggests that I was there, that I was in Iran, that like mm-hmm. that combination of the way that I look, the place that I went, the things that are in my backpack or in my suitcase, like that puts me at extra suspicion. And so I have to be super careful mm-hmm. that when I'm traveling there, right, I have to manage my beard and have no facial hair or wear a sweatshirt that says USA on it <laughs> or whatever that is, mm-hmm. right? And so there was all of a sudden this like tremendous amount of attention and work that young boys were doing to manage their experience were relatively speaking on the other hand like for girls it wasn't really until they were preparing themselves to interface with the iranian state and to have to move through you know public spaces once they not only landed at you know the international airport in Tehran or wherever it was that they were going, but even to cross Iranian airspace, right, Mm -hmm. meant that there was this electricity in the cabin of the plane, and they felt like they had to comport themselves differently, right? Their body language had to change. Obviously, their hijab had to change. And so um, that was, it was very interesting, like when matters of the body mattered more Mm -hmm. for boys versus girls. And then, of course, um, once, either gender actually arrived in Iran. It was this, I think, very relatable experience where it was young people who felt, you know, that going to Iran was going to somehow resolve, like, these identity issues that had been haunting them. They were looking forward to going to a place where, in their own words, they'd say, like, everybody looks like me, and that's going to be so refreshing, and I'm going to feel a sense of comfort and ease. But, of course, once they went, right, they said, no, like, I stood out like a sore thumb. People mm-hmm. just had to glance at me, and they knew that I'm not from here. I'm American. I, you know, whether it was like a girl who was sort of wearing too conservative <laughs> of, 
of Islamic dress, and so that would made it obvious that she wasn't from Tehran or wherever it was that the young person was you know, visiting, or whether it was like boys who didn't understand the different kinds of norms. Um, they said, right, I hoped in my heart that I would go to Iran and I'd feel a sense of resolution, but mm-hmm. when I'm in America, I'm too Iranian, and when I go to Iran, I feel too American. Yeah, and that even actually makes the, the title of that chapter in a way more poignant, because it's... Um to the homeland, and usually, you know, home is the place where you feel like you belong, you feel like you fit in, but as you mentioned, for a lot of them, when they went back, they realized how much they didn't fit in or they stood out like a sore thumb. They don't even know why, just even the way they walk or the way they talk, the way they carry themselves. So there wasn't necessarily that feeling of, oh, I'm back home, this feels like my home, because they weren't always made to feel that they fully belonged when they were there. And so this is a, the, part of the another area of the in-between that uh, Iranian Americans, like other uh, immigrant families or immigrant uh, descendants of immigrants, can experience of not being whatever their culture it is, in this case not Iranian enough when they're with the Iranians, but then also when they're with the Americans, you're not quite white or not American, even if you're legally white, to fit in fully there. So there is this, where do I belong? And that's why I think student groups and the Camp Ayande can also be meaningful to give that space of, okay, here is a place where you do belong. Here is... Uh, where there are others who are going to be similar to you, so you don't feel like your experience is so alien or different from everyone else's, and you can connect and making that much more meaningful. Um, So we're at another commercial break, and there's so much more to talk about in the book. We don't have so much more time, but I want to make sure uh, we talk even more about Iranians now and in the future here in the United States and with things like the census in 2020, There's a lot of talk about that, and identity also comes up related to that. So we'll continue the conversation with the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Neda Magula, after the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined today by the University of Toronto professor and sociologist and the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Neda Magbule, and we were talking about her book. Um, And before the break, I mentioned something that's coming up and relates to identity, and not just for Iranians, but other uh, members as well. With the 2020 census happening next year in the United States, uh, this brings up a lot of issues of of race, identity, how people should um, put their their race down when they're asked those questions, and also what effects that can have. Because I think for a lot of people, they can think, well, two things about the effects. One, maybe it doesn't make a difference. So what point does it make? And it definitely does. And second, some people have fears of, well, if I say I'm Iranian, uh, could that be used against me in some way? Some fears definitely exist, especially in in a post 9-11 America. So um, wherever you want to begin on that topic related to uh, the census, and specifically when it comes to Iranian Americans. Yeah, thank you so much. I think I'll I'll start at the beginning, which is to say that, you know, the story of the census race box and how we even came to have that, it actually, in a quirk of history, kind of dovetails almost exactly with uh, the big migration wave of Iranians to the United States following the 1979 revolution. So previous to that, there was not a kind of standard federal count 
that you saw, the sort of boxes the way that they appear today. Um, that was not as standardized uh, until about 1978 when the Office of uh, Management and Budget uh, put together something that looks like the categories that we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of where people from the quote-unquote, this is the way that form terms it, right? They say uh, people with heritage from Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa are white. And so that's the first time that you see that language, where they specifically say people from the Middle East should check the box white. And so it's like at this very quirky moment where Iranians were highly vilified in the media, where newcomers who were landing in the United States were facing, you know, street-level violence, and there were massive protests against mm-hmm. Iranians and against, you know, the, the the hostage crisis and everything else. So at this moment of, like, tremendous racialization and victimization, you had the federal government in very concrete terms, in no uncertain terms, that Iranians and other people from that part of the world are white. So that's something very interesting. But almost immediately after that happened in the late 70s, you had... Um, Arab American and other Middle Eastern American organizations who pushed back. These were groups that were lobbying in D.C. to say, you know, this is not an appropriate categorization for this group. We need to have our own separate box. This is an important thing in terms of having an accurate count of how many people, right, identify mm-hmm. um, with these communities across the United States. This is also about um, making sure that people have resources that they're entitled to under civil rights law. So in terms of, let's say, for example, having appropriate signage in languages that are relevant to where Middle Eastern people live or ensuring that they have all of the protections that should be afforded to them in terms of workplace or housing. Um, so many organizations, even in the 19, late 1970s, said, right, like, this is inaccurate. But every single year when the Census Bureau revises these categories and they make the decisions about if they're going to change them or not, there have been organizations pushing back. And I think your listeners probably will remember that this was very organized, particularly for the 2000 census and the 2010 census in the Iranian-American community. You had you know, celebrities like Maz Jobani yeah. and others who were part of these campaigns to, quote-unquote, check it right, you're not white. And the directive here was, you know, that if they're not going to recognize us with our own box, then take every opportunity to fill in the blank when they offer you that to say, right, perhaps I've checked white or I've checked other, but I'm writing in Iranian Mm -hmm. or Persian or Iranian-American. And so um, that has been, I think, an important sort of agenda item to get used to that, more comfortable with having the government have that kind of Mm -hmm. information. But ultimately, it doesn't mean a lot because basically all these forms go to the back room of the census and the Census Bureau basically just recodes or reclassifies when you check other and you write Iranian. They look at it more closely and they say, well, Iranian is technically Middle Eastern. Middle Eastern lives under the box that's white. So you get reclassified as white. And it's not that they throw your form away or like that we, we lose that information, but when it ultimately gets reported out, we lose that specificity. Iranians get counted as white. And as I mentioned before, um, they don't have the kinds of, um, well, let me put it a different way. The United States government is not responsible to Iranians and other Middle Eastern groups as a protected 
racial class when it mm-hmm. comes to things where people have been not treated appropriately or not treated legally. Basically, the U.S. government doesn't have to have the same level of responsibility to enshrine minority rights as it does to other groups. And so um, something that was considered a huge, huge win in this 40-, 50-year history of groups pushing back is that by the second term of Obama's administration, there had been a change, that within the Census Bureau itself, all of this pushback from organizations and the research that the Census Bureau had done themselves internally meant that they were on the path to including a separate ethnicity and racial box that was called MENA, M-E-N-A, and that stands for Middle Eastern and North African. Um, And that seemed like it was really going to happen in the 2020 census. You had the Census Bureau doing very detailed statistical analyses of sample versions of a 2020 census that they gave to 26 different subgroups who would, you know, sort of in some way be potentially people who could identify as MENA. So Iranians, RLGs, you know, any number of groups, uh, whether it's a nationality or an ethnicity or what have you, a sect, um, they did these tests and they saw that, you know, even though conventional wisdom was like, oh, the Iranians, the Lebanese, they're always going to try to check the white box, right? They have so many sort of internal motivations to go that way. They're never going to go to MENA. So the Census Bureau actually put this to the test, and they saw, lo and behold, nearly every single one of these subgroups actually prefers the MENA box, and they'll go for it when you add it to them. This included Iranians. The vast majority of Iranians who are part of their representative sample chose the MENA box, which for me, like as a sociologist, this is, first of all, like super fascinating because we don't have good numbers. All of this is just so, like, anecdotal. Like, we have a hunch that Iranians will check the box or they won't check the box. And so to have some kind of rigorous statistical numbers around that was, like, of course, very exciting for me. It was also very exciting because it kind of confirmed, right, what my book was suggesting, mm-hmm. which is as Iranians are in the United States longer, as more and more second-generation youth, I think, are... 18 years old and up, they're taking a census, they're perhaps ahead of a household now, right? They may be more inclined to check a different box other than white. And so lo and behold, you had you know statistical evidence, too, that said mm-hmm. this would be the right move. And so by the end of Obama's second term, you had internal memos that said, Obama agrees, let's go forward with it, this is a sure thing. And then, of course, you had the election of Trump. And by the time, you know, Trump takes office in January 2017, He says, you know, we're not going to move forward with a MENA box. We're not going to have a Latino box because that was the other agenda item that the Census Bureau had said, you know, we're going to move forward with this, which they had not had before. Um, And Trump said, you know, I don't want either of these racial categories included in 2020. But what I do want is a new citizenship Mm -hmm. box, right, where people check yes or no if they're a citizen. And so... Um, the implications of this, I think, are tremendous. Uh, I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth and try to get into Trump's headspace to understand exactly why his administration decided to not move forward. But I think um, on a very practical level, to have Iranians or Middle Easterners be a recognized class of people to whom his government is responsible mm-hmm. to provide appropriate health care, appropriate 
you know, linguistic resources, appropriate minority small business loans, all of these different entitlements that would come potentially with a census box. Of course, like, I have no evidence to suggest that these are things that he wants to do, right? right. And so um, these sorts of things are a major setback for our community. But I think it is really accurate that there could be um, a sense of hesitation among Iranians and other people that providing such information by checking the MENA box um, would potentially open us up for more surveillance. It would make it that much easier to find us and to do something harmful to us. Um, so I think that that's a very legitimate concern. But what I would suggest is that we have plenty of evidence over the past 40 years that being hidden in the white box has not protected us from FBI or police surveillance in other settings. Um, you know, particularly after the Patriot Act and Homeland Security, the establishment of that department, there's so much information that gets passed back and forth between different agencies in the government. And so, um, you know, there's any number of ways that they use like our zip codes, our last names, any other kind of mm -hmm. information they have about us, about like typical surnames or, you know, travel documents, this and that, to, to identify us when they felt like it. So you have, you know, evidence of the FBI recording phone calls of people with particular last names that sound Middle Eastern or Iranian. You have the NSEERS registry program where, um, you know, Homeland Security called in basically anybody on some kind of an Iranian visa and made them register. And so there's like any number of other techniques that the government has clearly been using to find us when they want to yeah. find us. And so I, I see that the census could potentially make that even easier. But to be recognized in the census would also mean at the same time a variety of different benefits and protections that we currently do not have. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when you're talking about the um, even though we, we can be legally considered white, it hasn't protected us in other ways. I shared with you yesterday that after 9-11, I was flying back from New York to Los Angeles and me and my brother and cousin got taken off the plane and interviewed by the FBI uh, I'm sure for no other reason than being three Middle Eastern people traveling together. They said we had a quote-unquote suspicious flight pattern or flight schedule. Um, but so, yeah, we can be considered legally white and technically white in that way that they consider it, but not get protected. And actually, the reverse can almost happen. And I think you were alluding to this before, that because Iranians can be considered white or are considered white in this legal sense, there's some forms of discrimination that are considered not to apply because you can't discriminate against a white person in that same way. I don't know if I said that quite correctly, but you share the case of a, a truck driver who faced discrimination at a truck stop. And it was almost this, again, this limits of whiteness or this murky area where it was he white or not. It actually worked against him that he couldn't be differentiated as not being white in a way. Yes, exactly. So I think that's the most important thing to start with is to say that given the history of slavery and civil rights laws in the United States, the strongest arm of protection that we have, like the strongest um, language and logic that we have, is about racial justice and racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. So although we have different laws that protect about, you know, someone's national origin or their religion, a number of different sites of identity, right, that are supposed to be protected. It's really the language of racial justice that historically has been the, the benchmark, right, in the area that we have the strongest protections around. 
And so it makes a lot of sense that when Iranians experience discriminatory, you know, personal contact or institutional forms of racism, or rather like discrimination, that the the language or the logic that people want to use is to say, like, that thing that happened to me is racist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so what happens when Iranian plaintiffs try to take these cases to court is that sometimes this issue of race and what race are we can get tricky. And so in the case that you were describing about the trucks, uh, the truck driver in Gary, Indiana, um, you know, he was uh, denied service at a truck stop, not allowed to use the bathroom. He was held against his will in a back office of the truck stop by a security guard. You know, any number of violations happened toward him. And what he needed to do in his deposition to the court was to say that, you know, the truck stop employee and the security guard perceived me as not white. And so that's why I brought this racial discrimination suit to the court, right? And all he had to do was say, not that he believed he was white, but he he understood that he was perceived as somehow not white. But, of course, in the deposition, that's not what happened. The the lawyer kept asking him, right, like, how do you think that these people saw you? And he said, you know, Iran's are from the Aryan background, and uh, you can't ask me how he saw me. You have to ask him. And so the, the truck driver himself was very evasive or ambiguous mm-hmm. in the way he presented himself to the court. And this created what I call a racial loophole, um, where for better or for worse, like the government or racist people, they can sort of exist in this state of plausible deniability and to say that didn't actually happen to you. That's not actually a real you know, form of racism when your identity is not legible. in a more sort of direct relationship Mm -hmm. to the question of race and are you white or are you not white. So um, there is, like, basically this concept I come back to over and over again to try to understand um, uh, what happens when people are seeking justice but they're not able to get it. And so the term I use in my book is racial loopholes, and this helps explain why um, so oftentimes these cases go to court and they do not work out in the favor of the Iranian person. Um, And then the term that I use in my book called racial hinges has to do with like a hinge, right, that opens a door. Mm -hmm. It closes a door or it opens a door. That um, This is also a condition of like this in-between or ambiguous space is that Iranians are oftentimes brought into court or they're brought into social space as a kind of person who is white or has proximity to whiteness, but sometimes people, for their own advantageous reasons, will paint somebody Iranian as not white or as brown. And so this Mm -hmm. kind of flexibility can be a source of strength. And I think it can be something really creative and generative, but it also puts Iranians as a special kind of risk, too. Right. Yeah. When I was reading that case, of the truck driver was heartbreaking because you see that it seems very clear that he was discriminated against for looking Iranian or looking Middle Eastern, but he himself was resisting so much saying that that was the case or that he looked quote unquote different um, from it's funny, like the ordinary person, which was assumed to be white or looks different from any than anybody else, which would assume that anybody else means the default of white. Um, but it was almost heartbreaking to see him not be able to assert that or make that clear than even getting to Persian comes from Germany. And again, he kind of shares his own version of the Aryan myth there. But because of that, that racial loophole, he was 
he was in a way not white enough where he could get discriminated against and treated poorly, but then legally uh, too white to get protected at the same time. So he, you know, that there's that uh, racial loophole that you mentioned where in a way the law works for you and against you at the same time. Um, and so you see him, unfortunately, not win that case because of that that racial loophole there. Now, we are going into our last break. As always, the time seems to fly by, especially with this book. I, I was telling Netta before that there's so much I could talk probably a chapter on each uh, a show for each chapter of this book. But after the break, we'll wrap things up about the book in general and some final thoughts. Again, I'm joined by the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Netta Makbule. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So we're in our last segment here talking with University of Toronto professor and author of The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian-Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, Netta Makhboula. And Netta, I also wanted to talk about, I think I mentioned in the intro, the research you're doing now, because I think that sounds quite fascinating. I'm sure a lot of listeners will be interested, but it's on uh, the lives of Syrian war refugees in their first five years in Toronto. So Anything you could share on that research, I would be really interested to hear about that. Yeah, um, so I moved to Canada from my job, uh, and this was about, you know, five years or so ago. Um, For me, it was a really sort of compelling moment to make this move because, on the one hand, the place I was leaving, the United States, was in this election cycle for 2016 where it seemed like we were going to have, you know, a Democratic president be replaced by a Republican with a very anti-immigrant platform. Um, And the reverse was happening in Canada when I moved here. So when I moved here, we had a conservative prime minister, a guy named Stephen Harper, who had a very um, sort of antagonistic relationship to the issue of culture, multiculturalism, the question of Islam and and Muslim immigrants to Canada. And he was replaced by Justin Trudeau from the Liberal Party, whose platform was about, you know, encouraging more humanitarian resettlement of Syrian refugees and a kind of open-mindedness and what they call sunny ways. And so (laughs) it was like the flip or the reverse of the place I was leaving was my new home. And so I came to this country like very optimistic about Canada, very excited about its um, sort of humanitarian agenda versus other countries in the global north that seemed like they were closing their borders. Um, And so there was an opportunity to do a study with Syrian refugees. I was very lucky to get nearly half a million dollars of funding from the Canadian government to document and analyze how newcomers were doing in the first years of resettlement. And part of this is because I have a lot of students that I work with at the University of Toronto who are Arab-Canadian, who are native Arabic speakers themselves. And so we had a capacity to perform for the Canadian government, I think, face-to-face research that they didn't have the resources or the manpower to be able to do. And so I went into it with, I think, a sense of optimism And it's still very early days. Um, It's only been one year since we've done the large-scale study that that is underway right now. Um, But even in spite of the different kinds of multicultural policies that are in place here in Canada and the rhetoric of the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau about open-mindedness, my observations from the first year of these families' stories is that, um, you know, Canada is not insulated from the broader trend around the world of excluding immigrants, of 
really um, creating nativist backlash and a kind of turn against multiculturalism, right, to toward more chauvinistic and nativist and populist policies. And so um, whether it's about the economic integration of refugees and how far Canada, you know, how far below the mark Canada fails with that and how many of these newcomers are struggling with poverty and with issues of not having adequate medical access and any number of things, um, there's actually much more that they share in common with the struggle of refugees and immigrants in the United States than they have any sort of special, you know, protection or benefit by having landed in Canada. So um, I have a series of research papers uh, that I'm doing with, with my trainees and my students here that are specifically about these outcomes of Syrian refugees. But more broadly, it's pushed me to think about these bigger trends that connect something like the Iranian case that I've gotten mm-hmm. to know so well over the past 10 years um, in the United States and to think about um, the connections that it has to, to Syrians or Arabs or Muslims uh, here in Canada. And so um, I'm thinking about, you know, what what I have to say about how immigrants and refugees from the Middle East more broadly, um, what they really reveal about the, the limits of a kind of um, tolerance or, or humanitarian open-mindedness. Um, I think that there's a lot that can be said about how we aren't actually interested in immigrant integration, but perhaps we can think about it as a kind of disintegration process, mm. uh, both about people's mental well-being, about their families, about their community. Um, so I'm toying with the idea of writing a book that's about actually immigrant disintegration, um, and and that's the next big project on my plate starting next nice. year, actually. I hope you do write it, and when you do, we'll have you back on to talk about that book as well. But the research sounds very interesting because... I think we a lot of people have assumptions or they already think they've made up their minds about a lot of these issues related to immigration and the experiences of the immigrants and also uh, the effect they're going to have on the communities and the countries they enter. And so that's why I think it's, we always need to go to the research to try to understand it and see what the reality is and what's going on. And also that can help uh, aid us in the future to how to make things better, both for those people coming and understanding what works and doesn't work um, and maybe in some ways helping people understand what the actual impact is when immigrants are coming, both on them, what they experience, but also the communities they enter. Now, we just have a few minutes, so I want to come back to the book and just have some final thoughts on that. So again, uh, the book that uh, Neda Mahboulet wrote, which was the book of the week for this last week, I highly recommend it really to everyone, but especially if you're Iranian and Iranian-American, I think it's almost like should be necessary or uh, obligatory reading, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian-Americans and the everyday politics of race. And maybe I'll put you on the spot here in a way, but if there's some few take-homes or uh, that you really want people to, to know about or to think about when it comes to, to this book or that even you came away with from writing that book, um, what, would you, what would you say are some of those big key take-homes? Um, yeah, I, I just want to sort of make sure that you know, although listeners have heard me sort of talk about different types of research I've done, whether it's interviews with young people or archival work and looking into legal cases and that sort of stuff, like, I'm also just still, as a human being, trying to figure it out for myself. I definitely <laughs> don't have all the answers. Uh, even in the act of moving to Canada several years ago, my race changed. So I went from being classified in the United States as white to here in Canada. In Canada, I'm counted as a 
minority. They have a classification called West Asian here, and Iranians fall under that. They're not counted as white. And so even though, like, intellectually I knew that, and I'd frankly, like, written a book that was about that very topic, you know, even my own sort of process of coming to terms with that or understanding what that means for me here, um, you know, I definitely don't have all the answers. Um, and so my book does not offer a kind of diagnosis of the condition, um, but I hope that it gives people tools, things to think about, at least a sense that if they've struggled with these questions, they're not crazy or they're not, you know, <laughs> somehow a weirdo that, that we have so much evidence and so much historical precedent for the things that we're living today. So that's, I think, one thing that I want to say. Um, but that also, like, I do this because I love my community. You know, we've talked a lot about parents and children and how is it that we can make children feel proud of who they are but not go overboard? And I just want to shout out my mother and father and my family more broadly. I think um, although my path is similar in that I had different attachments to my Iranianness more sometimes or less sometimes as I grew up, and it totally aligns with everything that you were talking about, Saeed, with sort of the developmental process of teenagehood and those sorts of things, I think you know, my home has been a safe place to turn when I um, have, whether it was, you know, sort of questions of who am I going to date in my romantic relationships and ultimately who I married or just any kinds of struggles that I had with my identity and the choices that I made. Um, I just, I do this work because my parents always made it feel like it was valuable and it was worthwhile and that our Iranian community can have its problems and we don't have to glamorize it or romanticize it but it's something important and it's something worth fighting for mm -hmm. so i just want to give a shout out to my family and my community in portland oregon because um you know they were always a, a safe space for me to to feel empowered to do the work that i do well that i think that's a good note we can maybe end it there uh, but i will share some final thoughts but you know, you're talking about the community, but also you've made a great contribution to that community in writing this book. And as I mentioned, I hope people will read it and, and put it on their bookshelves and, and share it with others because it's a great study and understanding of what it's like to be an Iranian American. And like you said, it's not that you have these prescriptives or, you know, things that people should do or we have to do. Uh, it's more giving an understanding of what's going on. And I think people will come away with their own thoughts or conclusions of what to do with that information. But it's a great telling of the story of what it's like to be an Iranian-American, as diverse as that experience can be, um, and also the historical context that helps us better understand how we got to where we are and then where we're going. I guess we'll have to try to figure out all together. But aided with this book, I think it can help us do a better job of that. So, Netta, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for writing this book and hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much. I had a fun time. Oh, thank you. Great. Um, that was Netta Makhboula. We were so happy to have her on the show, the author of The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans, and the Everyday Politics of Race. A big thank you to her for joining me on the show today. Hope you'll read that book and please share your comments with me of what you thought about today's show and if you have read the book would love to hear what you think about it as well all right that brings us to the end of today's show thank you to Ghazali here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fadi have a wonderful day